the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Monday show. I said that because it just feels like Monday because we missed yesterday due to the holiday. I hope you had a great holiday. I took some time off, got some relaxation and thanked God for the, those men and women who have faithfully served our country uh, since its inception. And I appreciate you tuning in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the word to stand on for life. As you know, it's a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, I'll do the best that I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can also email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're out driving your car, I hope there's two things that are true. One, you've got your heater on. This is the coldest day of our year thus far. And you can use your hands-free feature on your cell phone uh, by uh, just hitting the Call Now banner uh, at the top of your screen on the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our number, main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Let me get right to questions. We don't have anything going on uh, on a Tuesday night. So my first question comes from uh, our email inbox, and it's from John. He says, in Exodus thirty-one fourteen, how do Seventh-day Adventists uh, members of the Church of God and others who believe that one should observe the Sabbath reconcile their fierce belief in the first sentence of that passage and yet not apply the second sentence of that same verse. Obviously, he says, I'm making a point and not asking them to act it out. Well, let me read it and we'll try to make sense of it for you, John. Exodus thirty-one fourteen says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. John, you're looking for people with uh, an agenda. Um, You're expecting them to have uh, a logical mind in something like this. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, others who are Sabbatarians, um, they simply don't understand how to study their Bibles. It's just that simple. Um, Over and over uh, in Exodus, um, um, but it's also reiterated to us in the New Testament um, the, the Sabbath law, in fact, all of the laws were not given to the church. They were given to Israel before the church ever existed. It was a part of the law written to the Israelites. And over and over and over, the Holy Spirit goes through um, uh, great lengths to, to try to demonstrate, say to them, to who? To the Israelites. So if the law was for Israel and we're not under the law, those who insist on Sabbath day worship uh, are simply um, 
men and women who um, are, they got their mind made up. They're not going to be confused by the facts or what the Bible says. That's really important to understand because these guys will often try to, to trap us in this legalistic form of, of um, a relationship with God that simply never bears any fruit. So obviously they don't stone or put to death people that desecrate the Sabbath. It's also true that they don't work six days uh, and then commit the Sabbath. It's also true that there's a whole lot of other Sabbath laws uh, that they violate and don't think anything of it, uh, especially, uh, um, you know, taking a year off, giving the land and the other things a year off every seven years. Uh, It's just um, it's just bad Bible exegesis or more to the point, it's no exegesis at all. It's just, that's what it says and I'm going to do it. Uh, But there's two completely different audiences, John. So I hope that answers your question. Um, Here is a question from Randy. Haven't had this question in a long time. Randy says, Pastor Ron, I think Peter should have waited before making Matthias a replacement apostle for Judas. I think he should have waited for Paul because God called him. Um, Randy, you're not alone in that view. I, I think it's a minority view, but but there are others who believe it. Now, let me try to explain. Um, if you understand that, that when the disciples were together, um, waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come, um, they used prayer and a Jewish way of determining the will of God, a biblical way of determining the will of God, um, to, to, to find out who the person was that would replace Judas. As you know, the lot fell to two of them, and uh, they prayed, and, and they chose Matthias. Now, there's a couple of reasons I don't believe that, that they made a mistake. First, Paul still has some time to come. Uh, Paul's being named an apostle after being apprehended on the road to Damascus by the Lord. Uh, that's going to happen in the future. So um, the idea of replacing Judas was something that I think they rightly knew needed to be done quickly. There was a sense of urgency. The other thing is these are men who had the heart of the Lord. They were being obedient to God. They prayed to him to get direction on this, and I'm quite certain that even though the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen, that God honored their hearts that were seeking the right thing to do. I also think, and people, I don't know why people are are kind of jealous for Paul, like, oh, Paul should be the, the 12th apostle. Paul's apostleship was completely different, completely separate from the other 12. Now, they're all called by God, for sure. Um, they, they all had great ministries. We don't get a lot of information about most of the apostles. Uh, historically, we can study and dig out some of the, the, the great ways that they were used by the Lord. But the truth of the matter is that Paul wasn't yet ready. It wasn't his time. And when you see in heaven, in the book of Revelation, you see gates, uh, 12 gates, one for each of the tribe of Israel, or 12, 12 uh, thrones, rather. Uh, each of uh, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes, and 12, one each for the apostles. Uh, I, I believe with all of my heart, Matthias is going to be uh, on one of those thrones. I also personally believe, Randy, now this is just my opinion, and there's no way I can prove it. I think there's a lot of hints, but there's no way I can prove it. Uh, I think Paul has a very special seat in heaven, uh, not associated with the other 12 apostles, but one just for himself. Do you remember when John and James, the sons of thunder, uh, sent their mother to Jesus to ask for the seats on Jesus' right hand and left hand when he comes into his kingdom? And all of the other apostles, when they found out, were angry at him. Uh, And Jesus said, those seats are not mine to give. Those, those seats are, are given by his father. In other words, the reservations have already been taken for those seats. I think both of those seats are going to be very special places. I think the, there's an Old Testament seat. I think that's a seat that will belong to David. He is called in, Israel, in uh, Ezekiel 37 and 38 Israel's prince in the millennium. Uh, I think one seat belongs to David. 
Uh, I think the other seat belongs to Paul. The man that God used to a greater degree than anywhere else. So uh, Matthias isn't going to be renting a, a throne in heaven. I believe that was the throne. And I just can't imagine that they would want to do something, want to do it with the right heart. Remember, they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. So they're doing the best they can. God honors always, Randy, that kind of heart. So, again, I, I, I may not convince you, but I'm personally convinced that Matthias was, was the right choice. David, I think this is a critical one. David says, I think churches are trying to put God in a very small box by relying too much on the Bible. And then he says this, it's not Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. David, uh, I understand your sentiment. You're wrong. But, but I understand your sentiment. This is very, very important. You see, this deals with how we view church, how we view church life, and how we view the authority of God. You know, we want to get together and we want to uh, honor and worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and some pastor is interrupting you by opening the Word of God. Well, well every time you're, you're dealing with the Bible, David, you're honoring the Holy Spirit who was the author of the Bible. Again, this is very important because if you view church as sort of a free-for-all, people can just go in and do whatever they want and there's no order, there's no rules. Uh, Everybody can say, well, I thus saith the Lord or uh, call themselves a prophet or call themselves an apostle. That's not putting God in a small box at all. The Word of God is an enormous box and God himself put his church in that box. He honors his word above his name. And every time, David, and I recently had an encounter uh, here at church with a man who came up really angry after uh, the service he attended. It was his first time here at Calvary Chapel. And he said, so when do we get to worship in tongues? And I said, well, we're not going to do that here. And he said, "Well, well, why? And I said, because we're teaching the word. This is a Sunday morning service. We have three services and our emphasis is is teaching the word. That's how people grow. And he said very angrily, he said to me, so if God told you to start speaking in tongues, you wouldn't close the Bible and do it? I, I told him God wouldn't ask me to do that. The purpose of coming to church is to open our Bibles and learn about Jesus. And and again, David, that's not a small box at all. It's an enormous box filled with power and filled with holiness. And I think too often in what I call a charismatic or charismaniac culture, you know, we, we want goosebumps and God is a God of order. God is a God who wants us to follow the model given for his church in the very beginning by the first church. We want to find out what that is. It's Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves to, among other things, the apostles' doctrine, which is precisely, David, what we do here at Calvary Chapel, what healthy churches do. We devote ourselves to the Word of God. And then God works through His Word and changes the hearts of people. Here's one other thing to consider, David, and I'll move on. It is impossible for me to understand how anybody would think that the Holy Spirit would interrupt himself, and that's what he would be doing if he taught the Word of God, in order for people to speak in tongues, or in order for people to chase miracles. I just finished a study, not this, not yesterday, but the week before, uh, where Jesus, with six days to live, with less than six full days to live, spent his time teaching and preaching the gospel. Now, what do you do when you know your time is limited and you want to get the biggest bang for your buck? Well, what you do is you teach and preach. And that's the purpose of church. So we're not to rely on the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit in the church service. We're relying on the Word of God that is a gift from the Father, a gift from the Son, and a gift by the Holy Spirit who literally, according to the New Testament, pushed the pins of men. So Jesus works through his word. David, I've been doing this for 24 and a half years. And I can honestly tell you that every good thing that's ever happened to people in this church has happened because of the teaching of his word. Not my teaching, not my style, not my ability to teach. That's not the issue here. It's simply the word of God going forth in power and changing people's lives forever and ever. That's why God has put himself in that box, that huge box. And it is impossible to rely too much on the Bible. One final thought, I know I told you that would be my last one. The Bible... We all want revival. Well, what we need is a revival. And it's simply impossible to get enough of it. So, David, I hope that convinces you because relying on the very subjective working of the Holy Spirit in the church. You know, the Holy Spirit said when he comes, he will, Jesus said, when he comes, he will testify of me. Jesus never said when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to pour out a spirit and everybody's going to speak in tongues in church. He never said that that um, he's going to make people prophets or apostles. He just said when the Holy Spirit comes, it'll be about Jesus. Jesus is front and center always. And the Bible is where we get him. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to anonymous calling on line one in San Antonio. Anonymous, thanks for calling. You are on the radio. How's it going, Pastor Ron? It's going really well, thank you. How about you? Pretty good, sir. I'm just calling. I'm very interested in uh, in uh, I'm very interested in the uh, rapture. What I'd oh. like to know is um, what do we expect? When can we expect to happen? And what we should do to be ready when it does happen and, you know, things like that. So I'll listen to your response over the radio. Thank you, Anonymous. I'm glad, I'm thrilled that you're interested in the rapture. The, 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 the prospect of Jesus' imminent return is what gave the first century church so much power. Now, I'm going to answer your question, but let me, uh, if you've got something, you write this down. Uh, Anonymous, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com. Uh, and listen to the very first teaching that I do in Revelation chapter 4. When we get to Revelation 4, the very first study is always an in-depth, comprehensive study on the rapture of the church. Why and when and how we know. Now, obviously, when I say when, nobody knows the hour or the time. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming the second time. Nobody knows when he's coming for his church. Uh, those are things that we're supposed to occupy until he comes. We're to, to and, and this, I mean this literally, anonymous. I check out the eastern sky every morning when I get up. I look for the sun because that's where he's coming from. That's the direction he's coming. And I want to believe with all of my heart that it could be today. Now, obviously today it was too cold for me and Jesus to walk. So I, he's not coming today. But he could come at any moment. And that's what we need to believe. And as I said a moment ago, the, the, the imminent return of Jesus was the largest single source of power in the first century church. Those men and women, notably the Apostle Paul, they really, really expected to see Jesus at any moment. And it's what motivated, it's what empowered their service for the Lord. So here's what we know about the rapture, Anonymous. One, it could happen right now at any time. It's probably not going to, but it could. We also know that our job is to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes. And when the rapture happens, you can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51. Uh, when the rapture comes, it will happen instantly, suddenly, 
When people say Jesus is coming soon, a better way to think of that is he's coming suddenly. When when that clarion call to, to those who are his goes out, there won't be any time to rethink. There won't be any time to, uh, to do anything other than immediately we'll be with Jesus in the air. He will meet us in the air. And again, that could happen at any moment. Now, one of the things that you can do, Anonymous, is open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul describes the way the earth is going to be when the rapture happens. And you look at that list. He says, Timothy, mark this in the end, the last days. There will be perilous or dangerous times. We live in those times. And then if you read through that list... Uh, you, you might as well be reading um, 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 a story about what's happening on the earth that we live in right now. People will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. We will be without natural affection. In other words, the capacity to love will be gone. And that without natural affection, anonymous literally means uh, the, the love a mother has for child. We see mothers abandoning child. We see mothers um, aborting children, 65 million of them, and counting since 1973. So we live in that time when things are getting worse, when, when, when good is called evil and evil is called good. We live in those times now. And surely Jesus is about done. Now, the one thing that we have to struggle with, Anonymous, is that people have been saying the Apostle Paul most notably that Jesus is going to come at any moment for 2,000 years. Peter comments on that by saying God is not slow or slack concerning his promise to return. He's just patient, unwilling that any should perish. So what we need to do is live like he's coming today, occupy, be about our Father's business, and we do that every day until he comes. And I was pretty sure that Jesus would come in my lifetime. I'm getting pretty old, Anonymous, so I don't know if that's the case any longer. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ until he does come. So there's no way of knowing. Let me also make one other thing uh, I I hope clear to you in terms of of an event timeline. Um, The rapture is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. Nothing else has to happen. The world is set. The stage is set for the rapture of the church. When the rapture happens, we will be gone in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. That's how quick, how suddenly it's going to come. And that kicks off the great tribulation. Now, um, when we are raptured, uh, the man that we know is the Antichrist is going to be revealed. And he's going to be hailed as a great man of peace. Uh, He's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple on the original footprint of Solomon's temple in Israel. The, 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 The Muslim shrine and the Jewish temple will sit side by side and there will be, everybody thinks, great peace. Now, there's going to be a covenant that this Antichrist enters into with Israel. And that covenant is that he will let them worship at their temple. And then the peace that's declared in the Middle East from the issuing of that covenant. It could be right after the rapture. It could be a week. It could be a year after the rapture. But as soon as that happens, the great tribulation begins. And the great tribulation is God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And we know exactly how long that's going to last. We've got the days that are, are numbered for us in our Bibles. It's seven years. The first three and a half years is going to be the first series of seven judgments. And it's going to be terrible, but it's only the very beginning. For the first three and a half years, Moses and Elijah are going to appear as the two witnesses. The Western Wall and they're going to warn people. People are going to the, the, the authorities are going to try to kill them. They're going to devour them with fire coming from their mouths. At the end of the first three and a half years, God is going to allow the crowds to overwhelm them and kill them. 
And even as they're celebrating because those two troublemakers are gone, um, they're going to, in front of everybody in the world, rise up and ascend to heaven. God giving the world still another chance in the last half of the Great Tribulation to repent, but they still won't repent. Jesus said, even if a man rises from the dead, they won't believe. And then the next series of seven judgments, followed by the final series of seven judgments, first the trumpets, then the bowl or the vile judgment, are going to really wipe this world away. Nothing like this has ever happened. And at the end of the seven years, Anonymous, you and I, every born-again believer, is going to come back with Jesus to bring justice to this world. Very, very important. And the rapture is a really important doctrine. We, we need to believe it. And we need to look forward to it. Because Jesus is coming soon. Hope that helps. Anonymous. Remember, Revelation chapter 4, the very first study I did, I think you'll find it interesting. We've got 30 minutes left in this week's, or in today's program. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Let me start off while we're waiting for phone calls. i got a couple of anonymous questions. The first one, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing through pain. Uh, Pastor Ron, how does your church survive if you never ask for money? Uh, sometimes just barely anonymous. Um, you know what's interesting about this, and I, I, I say this to the glory of God. Uh, we've never asked for a dime. We've never let anybody know what our needs are. We don't even pass an offering plate or a, bo- a bucket or a hat or anything. Um, we don't let anybody who comes here ask for money. Um, We want church to be a place that you come to learn about Jesus. And we believe that if our ministry is in the will of God, then he will provide for the ministry that he's chosen. Now, a couple of things, Anonymous. I I want it to be very clear, because I know there's a lot of pastors who listen to this program. There's nothing wrong with churches asking for money. Nothing at all. I think sometimes we ask too much and we put too much pressure and we try to trick people into guilt trips and all those things. But but it takes money to run a church. For sure, it takes money to run a church. Um, so asking for money is not a bad thing. It's just at this particular church, because the, the ministry that God has given us is unique. It's not better than other people's ministry. It's just unique. Uh, I've never met a pastor who has the same kind of, of um, um, calling as, as we do here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, by that, I mean the Lord made it clear before Paul and I ever set foot in Texas that we were never to ask for money, never let our needs be known. And so... Um, We knew, uh, I didn't know how hard it was going to be, but we knew it was going to be hard. Uh, Clearly, if you ask people for money, people have good hearts, people with generous hearts, and they will give it. Um, But God just prohibited us from doing that. Um, You know, at times it feels like we're not going to survive. I mean, we've been here for 24 and a half years, so obviously we've survived but we never have enough, Anonymous, never. Um, everything that we do here, we do for free. Um, it costs a lot of money, uh, money we don't have. People say, well, why are you still in a strip mall after all these years? Because we don't have any money to buy anything. The other thing God told us was that we're not to take out a mortgage on a place. 
you know, we pay rent, of course, but but we're not to take out the mortgage. He, he he told me that his money is for ministry, and not for mortgage. Again, very unique. There's nothing wrong with other churches who have mortgages on their building. It's just something he's asked us to do. And there are times we are going right now through one of those times. Um, for the last two and a half months, uh, maybe a little closer to three full months, uh, it's just been really, really hard. And that means people are suffering, they're sacrificing. Um, but but God always is faithful. I think a lot of these tests and trials are just that. They're testing us. Uh, believe me, the enemy comes to me all the time and says, you know, if you ask for money, you'd get money. Um, but, but I can't do it. It's a decision that was made a long time ago. So we survive because God has made the people in our church really generous. Uh, they've bought into the ministry of this church. Uh, again, the free school that we have, Anonymous, uh, the free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office that we have, um, Manor House. Uh, those three, just those three ministries are are a hundred thousand dollars a month, and uh, that doesn't count the radio programs. It doesn't count our our evangelism outreaches. It doesn't count uh, a lot of the other things that we do. So it's very expensive. We don't have a big building, so we can't hope that our church doubles in size so we get more money. So basically, anonymous, we stay on our knees and we pray. And we pray. As a pastor here, it's hard for me to watch people sacrifice and suffer. I know it's hard. It's not so difficult for me or for Paula. Um, uh, we don't, we take very little out of here. Um, but it's difficult when people I love and care about are sacrificing. When it really gets hard. But all of them are learning to trust the Lord. And they've seen His hand move in their lives. So we survive barely, but we also thrive, and we've been doing it. I had somebody once tell me, anonymous, uh, that uh, school, another pastor happens to be a friend of mine, when I first talked about the vision of the school God gave me, and we were opening it, and he, he said, just, it didn't say it mean, he just said, uh, I give it six months. Well, this is year 20. So he's been really, really faithful. So thanks for the question. Here is, oop, got a phone call before the other anonymous question. Let's go to Scott from Shirts on line one. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. How are you today? I'm well, Scott, except I'm cold. I'm whiny because I'm cold today. I was waiting for you to say you're cold. (laughs) (laughs) My question today, and I've heard your preaching on um, the Office of Prophet, um, and I, I understand, like, from, uh, what, Ephesians 2, 2, uh, Hebrews uh, 1, verses 1 and 2, and I think mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians, what, 3 and 11. Um, so I, I understand and I agree with you that the Office of Prophet no longer exists, but can you clarify a little more on the gift of prophecy? Um, my understanding is that it's, it's to only be used, I guess, in the edification of Jesus Christ, but within the church or something. If you could just kind of clarify that. And is there a test for that gift of prophecy, like there is a test for the prophet? And uh, if you could just kind of elaborate on that, and I'll listen listen to you on the air. I can do that, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Uh, a couple of things Scott said, and I know he knows what he's talking about. So he said Ephesians 2.2, 2, but it's actually Ephesians 2.20, which limits the office of prophet, especially as we consider New Testament prophets, um, uh, to being foundational, the, the foundation already laid, the apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. I always view it this way, Jesus the cornerstone with his left hand out to the apostles, his right hand out to the New Testament prophets. And the New Testament prophets, of course, were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Peter, and James, and, and the, the authors of our Bible, in addition to uh, others that we know were prophets, not not uh, uh, the list isn't exhaustive, but but scriptures name several of them. Philip's four daughters were prophetesses, so women were not excluded from from the office of prophet. 
um, um, Agathus, I call him the dramatic prophet, and there were so many others that are named as prophets, but that's the foundation they needed. You see, they didn't have the word of God, so the prophets were the word of God. And um, uh, they're the foundation, and the, the Greek um, uh, grammar is, is important. The foundation has been past tense laid, and the church is continuous present tense being built on that foundation. So it's impossible for there to be New Testament prophets, the office of that. Now, the gift of prophecy is completely different. Having the gift of prophecy, Scott, does not make one a prophet. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then a more uh, um, practical um, um, demonstration is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It speaks about the gift of prophecy, and it is a gift for forth-telling, not foretelling as in telling the future, but forth-telling God's Word. That is a gift to edify, to strengthen, and encourage the body of believers. And it's a gift that is very active and very alive in the New Testament church. I've said often that I'm married to the world's greatest encourager. Paula is one that exercises the gift of prophecy and one can't help but to feel encouraged and strengthened uh, when she's exercising the gift. And, and, and again, we have so many in our church who are gifted encouragers. If somebody exercises the gift of prophecy, and we give opportunities for this at our church on Friday nights, uh, when we finish a book, we'll have what we call an afterglow, Scott. It's a time when the, when, when the body ministers to itself, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are flowing. And when that happens... Um, um, that gift of prophecy is is strengthening the body of Christ. And that's going to take the form of uh, people standing up. Uh, I, you know, they'll, they'll raise their hands. I'll call on them. And, uh, and they'll say, well, I think this is a verse for somebody. And then they'll, they'll speak forth the word of God. And somebody will say, that word was for me. I was asking that question. That word was for me. So that's how the body is strengthened. And that's what the gift of prophecy is. Is That's how it's going to function in a group. Now, the gift of prophecy, Scott, doesn't have to be exercised in a group. It can be exercised face-to-face. I like to think that I exercise the gift of prophecy when I'm teaching the Bible. I like to think that I'm exercising the gift of prophecy when, when we're out in public and we just start talking to someone. Let me give you a great example. It just happened yesterday. Uh, Paul and I, we had a day off. We went out for a very late breakfast and um, we ordered our food. I excused myself uh, and said, I'm going to use the restroom for a moment. I'll be right back. When I came out, Paula was talking to one of the waitresses, somebody who recognized us. And, and, and Paula was exercising the gift of prophecy, speaking to her and uh, waiting for me to come to the table so that we could pray for her to receive Jesus Christ. You see, that's what the gift of prophecy looks like, and that's how it's used uh, when used properly. But it is never a thus saith the Lord. It's never ominous. It's never a um, um, God's telling me the future. God's telling me you need to marry this person or that person. That is the nonsense that we have in many of our healthy, uh, unhealthy rather, uh, unbalanced churches who are... are um, allowing people to call themselves prophets. So, Scott, I hope that helps. It is a great gift and one that I think um, we all ought to pursue. Uh, Irene called in. She couldn't stay online, so she left a question. Uh, She says, Do I have to speak in tongues to realize that I've received the Holy Spirit, or do I just nurture it by reading the Bible? Uh, Irene, the, the way you ask the question, do you have to? Uh, suggest to me that you're attending a church or somebody has told you that if you do not speak in tongues, then you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. So no, you don't have to speak in tongues. First Corinthians chapter 12, at the end of it, Paul asks some rhetorical questions that the answer to all those questions is clearly no. Do all speak in tongues? The answer is no. Now, I I believe, Irene, and I hope this doesn't confuse you, but I believe God will give the Holy Spirit, or the gift of tongues, rather, uh, to to anybody who asks and has enough faith to receive. 
It's not name it and claim it. That's just saying it's a wonderful gift. It's the least of all the gifts because it's it's singular. It's very personal. But it's a gift which edifies our relationship with the Lord. It strengthens uh, our intimacy with God. Paul says, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. But he also understood, I mean, that there's a lot of people who just won't receive it. It just doesn't make sense to them. It seems like it really has no value. It's just gibberish. And um, I think that's unfortunate. Um, But understanding that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, this is Colossians chapter 2, came in you. And you have the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the fullness upon conversion. You are saved, you are sealed, and you have power available to you. The Holy Spirit coming upon you is a subsequent experience. And He empowers you to do whatever He's asked you to do. Now, Irene, I believe with all of my heart that we need all of us to be filled with that subsequent experience every day, all day. If you read through the book of Acts, over and over and over, you see uh, people being empowered, people who'd already had a, an experience with the Holy Spirit, you see them being powered over and over again. And, and um, we know Acts 5.32 says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. So as you step out in obedience, then you're filled with the power to do whatever he's asked you to do. So let me close this by saying two things. One, nurturing it by reading the Bible. Of course you do. Of course you do. But God doesn't want the Holy Spirit and His power to be theoretical. He wants it to be experiential. And so ask Him for the gift of tongues. It's a wonderful gift. Don't wait for something to happen to you. Receive it by faith. Exercise it. It may sound silly. The enemy will be there to tell you, oh, that's phony. That doesn't really, that's not really from God. He doesn't want your relationship with God to be more intimate. But just do it because God says, He wants to give the Spirit of God to you and the subsequent gifts. And just start speaking. If it makes no sense, laugh at yourself. Laugh with Jesus. But then watch what happens. Now the Holy Spirit coming upon us, it's not like the book of Acts, chapter 2, where suddenly people are compelled, they have no choice. To, to, To utilize the gift of tongues is a choice that we make. I don't speak in tongues every day. Uh, in fact, on balance, there are probably more days that I do not speak in tongues than days that I do. But having said that, there's a lot of days that I do. I do not have the gift of interpretation. So I don't know what I'm saying. But I do know by faith that I'm praying in the will of God. And I know by faith that if I pray in the will of God, those prayers are going to be answered. So I actually look forward to those times when I'm praying in tongues. So don't let anybody rip you off, but at the same time, don't let anybody convince you that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Irene, I've said this before in this program, and Paula and I have discussed it on the Thursday show, but you know, Paula was told, we went to a church after I got saved and had been given the gift of tongues. Um, uh, Paula, who'd been saved and praying for me for 13 years, honoring God with her obedience. She was told in church we went to that if she didn't speak in tongues, she wouldn't save. She didn't have the Holy Spirit. And it nearly crushed her. That's what these false teaching churches will do. So speaking in tongues is an evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the evidence. You want to know, Irene, what the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is? It's love. That's why, I know this sounds silly when I say it to people, but that's why chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians is between chapters 12 and 14. Because without love, it's just noise. If you are loving, 
if you love people enough to pray with them, to pray for them, to, to share your faith with them, believe me, you're filled with the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness, and it's glorious. So I hope that answers your question, Irene. Thank you for asking. 340-9585. Here's another anonymous question asking me to please share my view on Scripture versus tradition. Anonymous, that's simple. It's sola scriptura. Tradition is only valuable. It only has a place if it is codified by Scripture. I think part of the problem that you see mainline denominations, certainly we see this problem with the Catholic Church. They have replaced the authority of Scriptures with the authority of tradition, and that's simply unhealthy. So, Scripture versus tradition, it's no contest. It's the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. And traditions are fine as long as they don't violate what the Word says. As long as your heart in going through those traditions is to honor the Lord, not just go through the religious motions, but to honor the Lord. Um, Tradition is in large part uh, anonymous. What's wrong with the Church of Jesus Christ in this 21st century, why there is so little power. Uh, we got man deciding what's right and what's wrong when the Bible has been given to us with the answer for everything that we're going to deal with. Here is a question from Becky. She asks, how can I balance living a godly life in such a wicked world? Um, Becky, it is of paramount importance that you live a godly life in this wicked world, that you're light in the middle of the darkness. Now, how can you balance it? And the way is not to have any balance at all. There can be no balance. There can be no compromise. You've got to be all Jesus all the time. And the way you do that, Becky, is to share your faith. The way you do that is to live for Jesus. The way you do that, as I say often on this program, is to be with Jesus just make sure everybody knows that they, if they're hanging out with Becky, they're hanging out with Becky and Jesus. Walk in the power of the Spirit. Paul says you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And remember that a wicked world, a dark, dark world, well, those people become the object of our ministry. They may think of themselves as the enemy of our ministry, but we think of them as the object of our ministry. And Becky, in, in a, a dark world, there needs to be light. So you understand that your light, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they glorify, that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. John says, the end of his life, if we say we love him because he is light, we must walk in the light. And there can be no balance. Again, I don't, I don't like the word, but I use it anyway. There can be no compromise. It's our responsibility to live for Christ, to live with Christ, and to pursue holiness. And when we do that, then the people lost in this wicked world will see that light and be drawn to it. And God smiles. Very, very important, Becky. No balance. Just throw yourself completely in. This is probably the last question for the day. Um, It's an anonymous question. You'll see why in a moment. Uh, I went to my pastor and told him I want to do a home Bible study and invite people from the church to come. He refused my request. My question is, should I do it anyway? Anonymous... um, we are to be submitted to the authority of the people that God has placed over us. You ask the question, your pastor said no, for you to do it anyway would be sin. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You would be rebelling against a very direct statement given to your, by your pastor. Now let me use the rest of my time to explain why this matters so much. Um, 
I can't stop anybody from teaching a Bible study. I actually don't want to stop anybody from teaching a Bible study. Until I know somebody, until I know what they believe, until I've seen what they believe and how it affects their lives, I'm not going to trust them with people I love. And there's always charismatic people. There's always aggressive people. You sound to be, seem to be like one of those aggressive people who, who want to kind of drag people. You don't want to start your own church. So you, you, you use the resources of the church you're in. And we have no idea the pastors who are charged with the responsibility of taking care of these people's souls and spirits. We don't know what you believe. We don't know what your life in, looks like in private. So no, if you want to start a Bible study, then you do it. See if God's in it. But just don't bother anybody in your church. Just because you know them, don't figure that's an easy way for you to get a crowd. Let God bring people. You know, we, we never took people from other churches. Now, people from other churches end up in our church. But, but we never tried to stack our church with Christians. We wanted to tell people about Jesus when they get saved. Then we had a place for them to go. But the people that come to Calvary Chapel, I love them. I'm going to care for them. And I'm going to watch out for them. And that means i got to know the teacher. And your heart seems not to be in the right place. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Be safe out on the cold streets. I understand there's going to be a lot of ice again in the morning. So be safe. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.